Hello, babes and trolls, kids and queers. Welcome to Millenniagram, the Enneagram podcast your pastor definitely won't be recommending. Together, we are here to learn a little self-deprecation, a little integration, and together, dig ourselves out of our goddamn ditches. Let's get into it. Okay, so today, um, guys, we're going to go on a little bit of a brain adventure. Um, I have, I feel like I've sort of geared a lot of our previous episodes towards people who maybe don't know as much about the Enneagram, um, and while I'm hoping that this episode is still accessible, holler at me on the internet if it isn't, um, my hope is that, um, maybe we can go like a 201 kind of situation, maybe a 315, um, as we kind of get in a little bit deeper beyond like, oh my God, what's your number? What's yours? Um, if we can like maybe just put that little combo on the shelf and maybe see what um, what the Enneagram can offer us on a deeper level of self-transformation. Um, because I think it's really easy to sort of... Um, strip it down to bare bones and the only power I think that the Enneagram or really any self-help self-awareness system has is in its ability to go deep and to speak to the nuance of our lives. So today I am in conversation with one person only. Um, I really hope to kind of expand this conversation the more research that I do, um, the more parents and um, child development specialists and advocates I can speak to um, because I think um, understanding children is understanding how humans develop and understanding how humans develop is understanding trauma. I don't know how to separate those things. I don't want to separate those things. So... um, the further that we can get into digging deep and understanding um, what happened, what are the what are the stories that I began to tell myself um, out of necessity as a kid? What did I believe in order to survive, and how does that show up um, in my life now? So, um, I think this is helpful. This conversation is helpful on many levels because some of us are considering parenting or already parenting and we're like, oh shit, how do I do it different? How do I do it in a way that gives my kid unconditional positive regard? What does that look like? Um, What does it look like to respect them as a fellow human? And then some of us are reparenting ourselves. A lot of us are parenting while reparenting. I can't fucking imagine. I mean, I can barely keep two kitties alive that's not true they're very fat and happy but um yeah that's about as far as I could possibly go right now so really impressed with those of you like trying to juggle both situations um and yeah so I think um the more that we can understand ourselves the more that we are able to um have space and engage with others on their level and to hold space for their wounds um so yeah Let's get into it. Hey, I'm Anna Skates. Uh, pronouns are she, her, hers. Um, I call myself a children and family advocate. That's a self, self-given title, <laughs> um, but it makes a lot of sense. Um, and for me, that means that I'm kind of always looking for ways through my work to sort of be a voice for kids and their caregivers or parents. And that can kind of that has looked like anything from requesting that like a manager at a restaurant order step stools for the bathrooms so that kids can actually have access to the facilities uh, to like, you know, writing and developing content for kids and their caregivers or being trying to be a voice, you know, in that conversation somehow. Um, so I'm kind of working on currently honing in on a focus in all of that because <laughs> that's sort of widespread. Um, but in the meantime, I'm just kind of finding any way that I can to make ultimately to make the world a friendlier and more accessible place for kids while tending to their kind of social and emotional development and needs along the way. So, so I'm a nine on the Enneagram. Uh, I learned about the Enneagram in college as a religion major, actually, in like a spiritual formation class, uh, which was like <laughs> 12 years ago. So it's it's been in my life for a long time. And it's honestly been kind of my primary tool 
when it comes to self-awareness and relationships, like that's kind of my go-to and it's helped me so much to recognize, I guess for me, the main thing to recognize my patterns, to be able to see them clearly and to feel them coming on, you know, when it's happening and then to redirect them when I need to. Um, Mm. So, you know, like for me as a nine, momentum is an issue. That's a thing. <laughs> so, so like the moment I feel an urge to do something, to be productive and do some work, I stop whatever I'm doing and I switch gears and go do that because I know that that's the only way it's going to happen if I'm not careful. Um, or like on my days when my energy is at like a zero, which is a lot of days, I just kind of find small ways to get things done. And that's, I've learned that that's my way of self-care. I've learned that as, for me as a nine, my self-care is actually doing work, like getting up and doing something, oh, being wow. productive, which feels really counterintuitive to most people. Cause it's like, no, self-care is like taking a bubble bath or going to get a massage. And for me, <laughs> I'm like, girl, I live in a space of comfort all the time. My problem is I get stuck there and lose all my energy. So I have to like, I need to get up and make something, even if it's like cutting up some paper and making a craft. Like, it doesn't matter. I need to do something productive. So, anyway. Like, that's... I don't need to decompress. I stay decompressed. <laughs> I stay decompressed. <laughs> I need to get moving. So, that's my self-care. And But I, like, I would have never... I would have never gotten there without the Enneagram, I don't think. So, it kind of... Yeah. It informs things on the macro and the micro um, in a lot of ways. So... That's really cool. Yeah. So one of the things that um, one of the things that I'm really focusing on, both in life and in this season of Millenniagram, is um, talking about kids, talking about parenting, mm. talking about um, the kids that we have inside ourselves <laughs> that we are working to reparent. So yeah. Um, and I know that's a huge passion of yours. Um, mm-hmm. Where did that passion come from? What, what journey has that taken you on? Uh, with parenting and children specifically? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, so, <laughs> I mean, I've always loved working with kids. I have always worked with kids. Like, I started babysitting when I was, like, 12, you know, and, <laughs> and kind of never looked back. And the majority of my jobs that I've had in my life have been oriented toward kids. It's just kind of always been in me to do. And it always comes back to that. So, but I think for me, it's been a passion that is driven primarily by curiosity and fascination, which sounds really weird and sort of creepy, but like I could (laughs) sit, I always feel weird saying this, but I literally, I could sit and just observe children all day. I could do that all day and be totally content. And I think for me, it's being able to literally watch a human being develop before your eyes like I can see it's like I can see their brains working and they're going at such a faster pace than we do as adults as far as their (laughs) development goes it is the most it's fascinating but it's also so deeply inspiring to me um, to watch them learn their environment and how their body works and what this response will do, you know, like what chain of events will be set off by this response. And they're learning all of it and you can kind of see it happening. So I just, I feel like I'm learning about humanity when I'm spending time with kids, like in the purest way possible. Um, so I've done, I've done like some formal study around child development and psychology, but for the most part, everything I know has come from being self-taught, like reading a ton of books and, and, trying to constantly stay in this conversation. Um, and then, you know, combined with like my own personal experience of working with kids in all different arenas and whatever. Um, and I honestly, I always thought I'd be a mom, like up until probably the last year, I was like, no, nah, I'm just going to do this on my own at this point. Cause I'm single now. And I don't <laughs> think I want to get married again. So like I've been in the space, but I don't know if I'm going to do that at this point. And so I, so, I, but either way, because I'm not a mom, I always kind of carry this weird like wariness um, when I'm handling when I'm like handing out you know advice or my oh, perspective sure. to parents. Like I'm always, and that's going back to the enneagram. Like that's kind of my nineness too, being terrified of like asserting myself <laughs> because surely <laughs> some somebody has a better idea. Like you don't need my advice. Somebody else knows more about this, right? Like it, like my presence doesn't matter in this conversation so much. Mm. Um, but 
this is so and I've kind of been on that journey for several years now having you know formerly been a children's pastor and kind of being looked at as this somehow looked at, at as this authority figure in the church which was Real, a really strange experience, but really beautiful for me. And so I've, yeah. where that's brought me, though, is coming to the conclusion that most parents, from my experience and from the conversations that I've had, feel very much in the thick of it, right? Like they're mm-hmm. down in the nitty-gritty day-to-dayness of being a parent, and it's a lot. And when you're in that, when anybody is in that kind of a space, it's really difficult to you know, see the forest for the trees, so to speak. To step back. Absolutely. Yeah. Like you can't, you almost can't. Like you have to do the day-to-dayness. And so I kind of see myself as like <laughs> this little like bird, you know, I'm like flying above the treetops of this parenting forest, <laughs> if you will. And I'm just kind of able to see these different paths that are open and free that I can kind of just signal down about. Like I can say like, hey, just so you know, like up ahead, there's this, or here's what I, your kids behind you right now, but this is what they're doing behind you. Just so, like, you don't have to worry. They're right. The, you know, I can kind of, mm. I can see what's happening from a different angle because I'm not down in the weeds of it. I'm not down in the forest. I'm up above and I can just sort of fly around and make note of what I'm seeing. Just observe, you know, share my observations. It it kind of sounds like a, a therapeutic relationship on some level. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Like, I'm not I'm not going to try to tell you how to parent, but I, I can tell you what I see and what I know of mm. human development that applies to all of us, including you as a parent. Like, we're all, we're all on this journey together, and I'll help you, you know, by sharing my observations. And so, I don't know. I, I've learned to kind of settle into that role and find my voice in that role, and and take ownership of that and say, like, no, this is a role that's needed at the table and in this conversation just as much as anything else. Um, and being okay, which is hard most days to, to accept, but <laughs> that's kind of that's where the journey's taken me is, is taking on this role. So I love Mr. Rogers and everything that he built and did. Um, I guess ultimately uh, what I connected to with him is that he saw children as people. Like full, complete people, not as commodities or property, not as consumers, definitely not as consumers. He was very adamant about that. He didn't see them as cute or like blank slates, like all these typical ways that we, Mm. that we, this language that we build around how we see kids. Like he just, he saw them through all of that. He like actually saw them and not just, he saw them from an educated standpoint, right? Like he knew the developmental psychology and the science of kids, but he also completely saw and knew like their humanity. Like he saw the humanity of them and saw that he saw that as completely worth time and attention and care um, that they weren't getting otherwise, you know, in society. And I like, Oh man, like I feel that deep, like in my whole body, I feel that, that that's, that is in me. Like I, I know that to be true and I know that to be something that I have in me to give to the world. And so I guess like, I don't know, I'll say this. When I saw the documentary that came out last, uh, like at the end of last summer, uh, I mean, (laughs) okay. I was crying before the opening credits. I mean, it was, Ooh, it was tough in the best way. I I don't know. I, I was crying before the opening credits even happened. Like, when he's sitting at the piano at the opening, right? Like, he's sitting there, and he's, he's, yeah, he's talking about, he's working through this, like, metaphor, this very philosophical metaphor of modulation, like, moving from one chord to another in music, and how there are these, those same kinds of transitions and modulations in life that are, some are easier than others to make, and that children just need these, like, caring, loving adults around them who can, like, help them process the more difficult transitions like sobbing immediately <laughs> so- like and I again like I felt it in my whole body like I couldn't stop it and I hate crying in front of people oh man I hate it so much and I was with like a whole group of people and oh, I just God. I couldn't stop it it was just I, immediate and the whole time through the whole film I just kept feeling like I was watching 
my life being played out in somebody else's body in another time. It was the most bizarre. I'm literally going to (laughs) start crying now. That's the only way I know how to say it. So I get, so I guess the answer to the question of what about him inspires me is that like, Oh my God, this is so annoying that I'm (laughs) (laughs) It's, I saw my own potential. In his story. Like, I saw the, what I had in me. I saw that what I had in me and felt so deeply was actually still needed in the world. Oh. Like, I left the theater saying, like, that's my work. Like, that's what, that's my work to do. Like, that was it. Like, I immediately. You carry on that legacy. Oh, my God. Yeah. So then, you know, after the film, I ended up like randomly reaching out to like people from the film, like people that were in this documentary who worked with him on the show and heard back from every single one of them. They were so sweet. I ended up flying up to Pittsburgh and just having all these one-on-one meetings with these incredible people who were able to share, you know, all these stories and stuff from the show. But, you know, they were all like, listen, this work is still so needed. Like you're going to have to find a new way to do it because we're in 2019 now. Like, things look different but man it's still so needed and like there's no reason you can't do it just do it like you've got the heart you've got the knowledge like you've got it do it so it was just so encouraging and beautiful and oh anyway I could go on and on but yes I hope that answered your question freaking (laughs) incredible oh my god Uh, yeah it was really good the things that inspire us are the things that we can be doing are things that we should be yeah and the things that inspire us it there's some sort of connection that needs to be like fostered there because like I remember telling one of the ladies on the phone before I got up there I said I said I don't I know this sounds crazy but I feel like me coming up there and learning more about Fred and meeting the people who he worked directly with somehow learning more about that is learning more about myself Mm. (laughs) question mark on the phone and she goes I completely know what what you mean like Absolutely. Like, I hope that we can, I hope we can teach you more about yourself while you're here. Like, come on up. It'll be great. And so I think there's something to that, that when you find something that causes this deep spark in you, but it somehow seems external because it's about someone else, you know, it's wrapped around somebody else's story. Like, nah, follow that story. Like, there's something in that journey of following that connection that will lead you back to yourself. Are you a fan of nudes? Yes, this is a trick question. Um, I never thought that I would be saying this, but queer Twitter is literally the only place to be. Like, if you're not there, like, what are you doing? Um, And when I was fundraising to try and keep this podcast alive, um, everybody contributed their nudes and what we call lewds and hofos um, to get this show back on the motherfucking road, you feel? So um, if you would like to get in on the fun, um, I'm kind of changing up what the Patreon looks like, but... Um, I definitely know that you're going to have access to content before everyone else. And number two, um, lots of sexy pictures. They're not up there yet, but we're going to be working on that in the months to come because I couldn't just do that shit the one time. Um, And then... Honestly, you're going to have, like, unedited interviews, so you're going to hear the shit that we had to cut um, because it was maybe fascinating and fucking classic and brilliant, but, um, you know, people have short attention spans, except for you, because you um, have a bigger brain. That's not science. Um, But please, join us on Patreon. Um, If you just search patreon.com slash millenniagram, um, join our posse, $1, $5, like whatever you can do. um, It really keeps our show on the road. The majority of our patrons are $1 and $5 donors, and I fucking love that shit because it means that um, capitalism is sucking us all dry, and yet we are doing you know, giving our widow's fucking might to keep alive the things that we love. And I'm grateful to contribute to one of the things that you love. Let's continue writing this story together. Patreon.com slash millenniagram. Go find it, hun. Uh, I feel like this is going to be a, a, 
a cheat answer, sort of. But um, because <laughs> here's the here's the tricky thing about these the childhood wound conversation is that some of them and so many of them are perceived. They're perceived. They're based on something that we somehow perceived through our life. Some people it was very real, of course. But like for me, I was never told that my presence didn't matter. I was never told that it was not okay to assert myself, ever. I was never explicitly told that. And I don't ever remember feeling that. Like, I was on stages singing solos by age five. Like, I was the poster child of my (laughs) youth group. I started our praise band. I had great relationships with both my parents. And I had this super diverse friend group. And I was really weird. But, like, everybody, like, I loved myself. Like, I never, I don't know where that message came from. That your presence doesn't matter. Where it's not okay to assert yourself. I have no idea. And I'm still like, part of me is still trying to work that out. But I also, at least for me, I don't know that the source necessarily matters. But, man, as soon as I heard somebody talk about the childhood wounds of a nine, I, like, gut punch. You know? Like, I felt it in my gut. And I knew it was in there. So, I guess, like, as far as what we can do to support children on their journey of self-discovery... Like I've thought about I've I've thought about this a lot with kids and and the enneagram and how it applies to parenting and how it, how we type kids or how we can learn to parent kids of different types. And there's a million things I can say about it, but I think as I've processed through it, at the root of it, it all comes down to prioritizing your own self-discovery. Oh, because wow. Because, and and letting that process happen for, for you, you and your kid, like honoring their journey of self-discovery too, which means like not giving them our baggage, not making our yeah. baggage their baggage, not imposing right. our own insecurities on them or whatever it is. Children learn from doing, from playing, and then from modeled behavior. So if if we as the parents or caregivers can model the importance of tending to and honoring one's own self-discovery, then they'll they'll learn that too. Like they learn Mm. by model behavior. So the best thing we can possibly do to help a kid on a journey of self-discovery is to foster our own. Because that's how they learn that that's significant and that's important. Like take your hands off their steering wheel and drive your own car and they'll learn by watching you. They'll learn that the journey of self-discovery is really important and worth the time and the effort. Like that's how they learn. And so I think that's, and that feels like a non-answer to your question. No, it absolutely is. But I think that's what it comes down to. Like that's it. Like that's at the end of the day what it is. Because as you're, because too, as you're honoring your own self discover, your own journey of self discovery, you become aware of your own patterns, and you become aware of these coping mechanisms that you've built that then like get fed into your relationship with your child, and you're able to stop those patterns, and you're able to redirect them as you need, you know, right, and that right that helps to foster a loving relationship and trusting relationship with your kid, and anyway, I, but I think it comes down to that. I think it comes down to fostering your own your own journey. So it ties directly into this whole idea of control and respect, control versus respect. I'll say it that way. Um, so I, and that idea stemmed from this scenario that I ran into at lunch the other day. And I've seen this over and over. We've all seen this, right? A family's in a restaurant. One of the kids is not, you know, conforming to the social expectations of everyone in the restaurant. That they're going to get to quietly enjoy their meal, which then results in the parents just fighting through the whole meal with their kid to keep them from disrupting the restaurant. Like, it's this, it is a scenario of control, right? I'm going to steer your steering wheel because you don't know how to drive the car yet, and I do. You don't know that you're supposed to be quiet in this restaurant, which, since when? And... So I'm going to, I'm going to drive your car for you and, or I'm going to tie you to the hitch and I'm just going to drag you down the road because we got to go. We got to be quiet here. I got to control the situation instead of bringing them along and teaching them like, like pointing out like, oh, do you see, do you see this family over here? It looks like they're having an interesting discussion. I wonder what they're talking about. What could we talk about? Like, that's it. Oh, you're not driving their car. You're riding on the road with them. Like, that's the difference. It's, it's, a, it's, 
It's a, and it's a really difficult thing to do because I get it. Like I understand like the stress of feeling that pressure all around you from people like staring at your table. Like, are you going to get your kid under control? You know, (laughs) I know that feeling. Oh man. Especially as a nine. Like, I'm like, I just want to make everybody happy. Is everybody okay? Like I'll shut the kid up. It's fine. Like I get it. Um, but it got me thinking about other times when I've seen parents specifically at their, at their most worn out, at their most frustrated. And it is always, always in moments of control. It's always when they feel defeated because they've been fighting tooth and nail to control their child's behavior and it hasn't worked. And so they're just exhausted because they've been fighting for, for nothing but is what it feels like. And so I played that out then and started to see how this ties into, I mean, literally everything in life. Everything. Like when we hold everything and everyone around us in a death grip, like there's no <laughs> life there. It's a death grip. Like you can't breathe. There's no air. And, and nobody likes to feel controlled. Um, well, and nobody I thought likes it was, that. I thought it was so interesting. You said that exact thing on your Instagram story. I think it was yesterday or the day before about, um, yeah. respect can only exist outside of control. And yes. obviously yes. that is so relevant to parenting, but it's also so relevant to like all relationships. I feel, um, yes. because we, uh, there have been so many times where I have felt not respected and I couldn't put my finger on exactly what it was that Hmm. you know that maybe there wasn't something exactly unkind said or exactly I just I could feel intuitively that I was not being respected or that I wasn't looked on as an equal or as a peer and I think it comes down to control absolutely 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 the other person's need to control our interactions our engagement our relationship in some way and I'm sure I've done it yes. to others as well. Yeah. Well, and, and I know, like, at least in parenting, the fear is, like, if I let go of control, if, right, like, the parent in the restaurant, if I don't control my child, they will be out of control. Then it's chaos. Yeah. And it's chaos, which is not true. The chaos is found in the constant, like, control battle. because Struggle. The power struggle. Yes. Yeah. And, and in a parent-child relationship... Again, they learn what's modeled, right? So if they learn that the way to interact between parent and child is on the basis of control, guess what they're going to try to do? They're going to start finding ways to find their own modes of control. And a mm. lot of the time it comes it comes in around mealtimes because what they put in their body is literally about the only thing they can control. Like, you can't force feed them. Like, they can keep their mouth shut. You know what I mean? Right, um, right. So, so they find a moment where they have they can find a little bit of control and they exercise it because they've learned that, oh, this is, this is what you do. This is how a parent and a child relate. It's out of a mode of control. Um, and it, and it sounds, it's not simple. It's not easy. It's simple. (laughs) You know, like at the end of the day, like whatever, whatever you model for them is what they're going to do. So, So again, going back to self-awareness and your own journey of self-discovery, like if you're on a journey of self-discovery and honoring that, you're going to become necessarily more self-aware. Therefore, in these moments, you're going to realize, oh, how can I, how can I let go of control in this moment? How can I instead ride on the, ride on the road alongside with my kid instead of taking their wheel and steering Mm. them? What is a Mm. way that I can be on the road with my kid at the same time? Um, Because... The only way to help somebody find stability and security in the midst of chaos, like a tantrum or a blow up or whatever, is to be stable and secure. Like if a child is is fighting for control, they're looking for stability and security, just like any of us are when we're fighting for control. We're looking for stability and security. And the only way to help someone find that is to be stable and secure. Which doesn't mean fighting for control, you know, like entering the battle and fighting right. for control on your end. Like that's the opposite, um, because you can't you can't drive two cars at one time. You can't you can't control two things at once. So as soon as you let go of your own steering wheel to take hold of your kids, like you lose control of your own vehicle. You lose control of your own your own operation. 
um, you lose your own self-control to take control of someone else. And, oh, that's a really good point. Yeah. And, and that. Right. And so, and, and again, like a kid can't learn, you know, self-resilience and freedom by you taking their wheel. I think when I said that about, you know, respect cannot exist within the realm of control, like think about, I kind of think they're opposites. I kind of, I'm starting to wonder if control is actually the opposite of respect. Control of another mm. person is the opposite of respect for that person. Because, like, think about it. If I, if you were upset and crying in another room, like, having a really hard time, it is, <laughs> control looks like me busting into the room and saying, there's no reason to cry. I need you to stop crying. Like, quit. Calm down. Go to bed. <laughs> right. As opposed to a respectful way of interacting with you, which is like gently knocking on the door and saying, it sounds like you're upset. Is there anything I can do for you right now? And accepting Mm. whatever answer comes from that. If it's, yes, I need you to come in and sit with me for, great, I'll do that. If it's, no, thank you, I just need time alone, great, I'll walk away. Like, that's the difference. And (laughs) one is dragging you down the road because you obviously don't know how to drive your own car. And one is saying, you can cruise like that. I'll just cruise right here on the road with you. Like, let's cruise mm. together. And it's, and respect just, it necessitates giving someone space and having patience and a release of the need to dictate someone else's experience or process. Right. And, right. and none of that space, patience, release, none of that can happen in a mode of control. It just can't, you cannot be respectful of another person's process if you are looking to control that process, it can't, they can't coexist. So I have a, I have a, a question, a follow-up question to that. Mm-hmm. Um, when you sense that you are in a situation where someone is attempting to control you rather than respect you, mm-hmm. I think a lot of times, especially for somebody like me who grew up not feeling very empowered, I didn't, I didn't feel like I had my own autonomy or my own, um, agency. Yeah. So when I sense now, before I used to just capitulate, but now I think what I've noticed in myself is sort of a, a reactionary thing where mm. when someone is attempting to control me, I attempt to control the situation back because yes. I'm trying to reclaim that power. And I wonder if that, I wonder if that has a lot to do with the, the parent child struggle a lot is that they feel the child feels controlled. Yes. And so, um, they're they're trying to control back at you you know they're gonna fight that because again nobody likes to be nobody wants to be controlled we are not meant to live a life controlled by and restricted by outside forces right we are Mm. meant to live this like free and beautiful life that we learn all along the journey and that can't again that can't happen in a controlled space in a in a hyper controlled space and so yeah any of us if we feel restricted we're gonna fight back on that right like it's a fight or flight (laughs) you either you either shrink down into that which is which is super super destructive and unhealthy for a person to do or you fight it which just causes like this headbutting sort of moment and that's you know when a child is is crying in a restaurant or constantly trying to get your attention like they're seeking some some mode of control because they feel themselves being shut out because you're trying to control mm. the situation. And so right. the the best way to remedy that is again, to be stable and calm and either find a way to bring them in or, you know, say, you're welcome to, you know, do this, this or this. Like I need to have this conversation over here right now. And this, and it's okay to set boundaries as a parent too. Like, <laughs> I don't mean like just, you know, cater to your child's every whim if you need to have an important conversation or you need to do X, Y, Z, like set your own boundaries, but be calm about it, you know? Yeah. Don't drag your kid into another room. Like control is never going to get you the result that you actually want, especially in relationship. It is never going to result in a loving, caring, respectful relationship. Yeah. It It will result in the chaos of a control battle every time. Because no one wants to be controlled. How do you unlearn that that need to control? It seems so. 
it seems so ingrained into our culture, yeah. into the way that we, um, you know, we think, I, I mean, I just, you could take this almost anywhere, but I think of like, you know, portrayals of romantic relationships in media and yeah. how, you know, you have to like manipulate or finesse or like, you know, there's almost this like game playing that goes on. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's looked at as, well, that's just, that's just how this kind of thing goes. You know, that's Oof. how the shit goes. Um, how do you unlearn that system of power struggle? Yeah. I, so I've read a lot of books this last year, like, for lack of a better term, self-help, self-help books. Yeah. Essentially. Um, <laughs> I read The Obstacle is the Way, and I read, um... Uh, you Are a Badass by Jen Sincero. Oh, yeah. And so many of these people ultimately are saying the same thing. The only thing that you actually can control is yourself. So stop trying so desperately to control anything else outside of you. Accept whatever it is and just move on. Don't don't accept responsibility for anything that happens outside. Like, if someone else is feeling really upset and you're like, oh, okay, I'm sorry, I'll just drop this thing and I'll, I'll do whatever. Nope. Because again, like, that's trying to control their process of emotion, right? Like, in, in relationships, for example, like... Wow, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm going to call my significant other while they're at work and, and, and cry and, and say, I just need you to come home. And the significant other just drops everything that they're doing to come home. Like, but why? Like, if we stop, <laughs> right? If we stop and step back and instead say, just like a parent-child relationship, right? Set a boundary. Hey, I'm so sorry. It sounds like you're really having a hard time and I hate that you're feeling this way. Um, I am not able to come, come home right now. Um, but I hope you're able to rest and, and, you know, find a way to work through this or feel everything that you're feeling and I'll be home at this time and we can talk Mm. about it. You know, Mm. and, and that's, we see that as like so cold and distant, right? Like that's not romantic. Like, no, I mean, or maybe it is. <laughs> maybe it's being able to see yourself uh, in a very clear way and see what see what it is you're actually responsible for, which is yourself, while still being able to take care of another person and say, like, I see that you're hurting, and I hate that, and I I so want you to be able to really think through why why it is you're hurting, and I'll be home at this time, and I'd love to talk to you about it. Like, that's beautiful. Because because it's also allowing the other person agency to be who they are fully and go through their own journey. It is respecting their own journey of self-discovery to allow them their process instead of fighting to control it or fighting to, you know, oh, let me let me help you not feel this way or let me help you see things my way. Like, no, that's just setting your own boundaries and realizing that you're responsible for yourself and yourself only allows them to also feel that same sense of responsibility for themselves. But what we've, what we've built up in our culture is this like gross <laughs> sort of system of codependency and codependency yes. is about control. It's fear wow. and control like yes. at the center of it. Right. <laughs> um, and it, and I think, I wonder, too, if part of codependency is also, um, well, I know that it is this sort of sense of a release of responsibility for oneself Mm. and seeing that the responsibility for oneself lies with someone, with another person, with your partner, with whatever, Um, which is, which also, like, I feel like a lot of time ends up kind of in this weird cyclical game of control at the end of the day like oh I know that this other person feels responsible for me so I'm going to do xyz so that it triggers this response for them because they're responsible for you know okay so ostensibly this episode is about um parenting right but for those of us who have undergone a series of developmental traumas a lot of our adult life is taken up with kind of reparenting 
And so I think that when Anna talks about how to respectfully interact with a child as another person um, and what it means, like how control is the opposite of respect, I think that we can learn to sort of relate those same um, ideas towards our reparenting. I think we work really, really fucking hard to like avoid or repress or stifle or control those childish voices because we think, whatever the fuck, like I'm a grown up, I shouldn't think that way. Um, this is just my insecurity talking, whatever. Um, what it actually is, is child you stuck in time who doesn't have the information that you have. I mean, honestly, is everything about internal family systems at this point? I don't, I guess. Um, but I think that it's interesting to think about what could happen if we could observe and respect um, the tantrums and perhaps the chaos of those inner child parts and sort of um, assist them on their journey and, and their, their very real like quest essentially for um, stability and security. Like what would that look like? Oh, I, I mean... It, we'll be learning this for our whole lifetime. I mean, it's just, we're so new. Man, humans are so new. <laughs> we don't know what we're doing. We're all figuring this out as we go. So it's just going to take time. But um, yeah, I think, again, like your own, honoring your own journey of self-discovery is so key because part of that is recognizing that the only thing you have control of is you, which means you are fully responsible to you. Which means if you need to get your needs met, it is up to you to find a way to do that. Not to manipulate someone into doing that for you. Because again, that's a form of control. <laughs> so <laughs> going back to it. But yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, we're just, it's going to be a long time till we figure this stuff out. But that's okay. We're doing good work in the process. That's what it's all about. I guess my question to you is how... So first, how have you learned or are learning? How are you learning to reparent your younger self? And what advice do you have for those seeking to do so? Yeah. Um, I mean, therapy is good just in general. <laughs> um, I'm not currently in therapy, but I have been in therapy um, over the last you know two years on and off. And it's so, so significant in this process. So just ever just everybody check into that um <laughs> which i'm sure most of your listeners probably are actively in therapy because these are all people who are trying to become more self-aware but um this so as far as reparenting my younger self this is where the enneagram and the touch point of the childhood wounds has been really helpful for me um because knowing that i have hurt around acknowledging my own significance in the world like that is where my hurt orients is oriented. I've learned to almost uh, to almost observe myself in those moments when I feel that wound being kind of prodded or touched. Not trying to control what comes up from that necessarily, but just observing it and and noting that I can choose. I can actively choose not to believe that because again, I have control over myself. I have control over my mind and what I think about certain things and how I respond to certain things. So I've just fully accepted that responsibility for myself and saying, okay, I feel this, I feel this wound being touched. And how am I going to respond? I'm responsible for my response to this mm. and where I let this take me. So what am I going to do about this? And I think that's honestly going back to parenting in general, like that's that's parenting in general, not making good parenting, not making judgments about what's happening in a particular scenario, but merely stating what you see and allowing that child to make a decision about what they'll do in that in that moment. It's a way of providing a sense of safety and compassion, but with with kind of a strong dose of freedom as well. And that's I think that's the only way you can grow is when you're free is when you're free and when you have this strong dose of safety and compassion that's being provided by a non-judgmental observation of someone else or or yourself. So if we're talking about the child within, like I'm observing the child in myself when that when that childhood wound gets gets touched. I'm observing myself. I'm observing that child within me and saying, "I see that this is happening to you." And I'm here if you need me. 
That's it. Like just being the stable, calm presence that that child needs in order to navigate that feeling. And the more I'm able to give myself that strong and stable observation, the more my response will be strong and stable. What's fascinating to me is as I conduct these interviews for season two, something that keeps coming up is um, how um, we don't trust children. (laughs) Oh, and we don't mm-hmm. trust their um, we don't trust their intuition. Yep. We don't trust their self knowledge. Yep. And um, we try to impose our own on them. Yes. Um, specifically, like, so I I've been asking this question to some of my guests. Um, did you have a sense of spirituality as a kid? And I didn't have any real. I, I, I was just trying to get the whole story, but the mm-hmm. more that I kept asking that question, the more that I was hearing that at five, at six, at seven, even younger and maybe older, uh, my guess as children mm-hmm. could point to some, yes. some guiding um, sense of intuition or spirituality yes. or engagement with the divine in some way. Yes. And along the way they lost it. Yes. And their work as adults is recovering it. Yes. 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 A thousand times. Yes. And it's uh. so fascinating and it makes me freaking angry because <laughs> I'm just like, what if we had been believed? Yes. You know, Yes. obviously there's nothing that can be done about that now, but there's definitely shit that can be done about it for the coming generation for the children that we raise ourselves, but also in the ways that we, that we reparent those, mm-hmm. those kids inside of us who weren't mm-hmm. believed, who mm-hmm. weren't listened to. Well, and uh, yeah, I think that's where the whole idea of children as blank slates, like that's literally Oof, what most yeah. people think of. Oh, I've believed that 100%. Uh, I don't think I've ever I been mean, interrogated so. that until just now. <laughs> yeah, right. And, but that that suggests that these humans aren't humans (laughs) right that they don't have actual emotions that they don't like that we somehow have to shape them and i'm sitting over here like no we just have to keep them safe while they shape themselves (laughs) like they'll get (laughs) shaped like they're fine like they're humans we we all started out this way our job as adults in this world is to make sure that they're that they stay safe like that they don't actually get hurt along the way Um, but again, like respecting their own, their journey and part of respect is trust too. Like if you, again, like going back to that analogy of like, if you're in the room crying, if I knock on the door gently and say, it sounds like you're upset. Is there anything I can do to help you right now? And you say, no, that does, I have to accept, I have to trust that that is what you mean in that moment and walk away instead of circumventing that and coming into the room anyway are you sure are you sure like or trying to make yourself feel better yeah trying to make yourself feel helpful in some way yeah Yeah. (laughs) right (laughs) exactly let me help you so you'll help me yeah um on that on that topic uh one of the books that has been completely completely revolutionary for me uh has been the spiritual child by lisa miller oh okay it's this whole um it's a whole like case study and psychological study of this idea of spirituality from birth. And, um, she, she essentially makes a case that exactly what you said, like children are spiritual being, we are spiritual beings from birth. Like we have, we intuit something beyond us, whatever that may mean. Um, and yeah, and that, that is in us innately from birth. Um, it's a fascinating book. Oh, man, it's so wow, good. Wow, I've got to read this. Because it's also, I mean, she's a psychologist. Like, she knows the science behind all of it. Like, it's a very scientific book, but also very accessible and conversational. And, oh, man, it's brilliant. It's my favorite thing. So, um, anyway, I could go on for forever about that. But that's part of the advocacy piece for me is, like, Hey, they're trying to tell us something. Yeah. Like if you're, I was in the grocery store yesterday and, uh, this isn't spiritual necessarily in nature, but I was in the grocery <laughs> store yesterday and I walked down an aisle and there was this couple, like a mom and a, a dad, I'm assuming with a, with an infant in the, uh, in the cart in the grocery store. Yeah. And they're, they're like sort of silently looking at the things on the shelves and like kind of 
communicating in different ways with one another what they're going to buy. And the child is just like making these sounds, not, not like screaming or anything, but just like, you know, and I, as I walked by, I thought to myself and said to my friend, like, she just wants to be part of the conversation. But nobody's She's listening. She's just trying to like, chat. Yeah. Yes, but we're trying to listen for words. Like, we're trying to listen for communication the way we know to communicate instead of actually listening to what is being communicated by their various modes of communication. Like, we're not trusting that they're actually communicating to us. Wow. You know? Yeah. And it's, it's, it's that simple, but also that big. Like, wow, what if we saw this tiny person you know, who's, who's babbling or making these noises. Like, what if we actually trusted that that is some form of communication? It's not just yeah. cute babble. Like, what are you trying to say to me? Like, look around where their eyes are. What are they observing? Like, trust that they're like, trust them, trust their communication. Trust, trust that they are, they are part of this world. They are part of this life, a very real part of this present. Trust their, yeah. Trust their intuition, trust their communication, their, their ideas. Anyway, I could go on and on and on about Ah. that, but I love that so much. That's beautiful. Oof. Okay. That was a lot, Um, but I believe in us. Um, I want to continue this conversation because I feel like we gave you some cool tidbits and now we need to go out into the world. We need to work this shit out. We need to see how it all plays into our lives into our numbers, into our interactions with the people around us. So hit me up on Twitter at Hannah Posh, H-A-N-N-A-H-P-A-A-S-C-H. And let's talk about what respect and control look like in both our parenting relationships, in our reparenting relationships with our younger selves, and how that plays out. Hit me up. Let's keep the conversation rolling, folks. I'm excited. We out.